Amen. You can be seated. Hi, I'm Tom. Chris, nice to see you. Hey, I got two things here. I got this piece of paper, looks like a $20 bill, and I got this piece of paper, looks like a $1 bill. You can have either one. Which one do you want? Here you go. Now, why'd you pick the 20? Value. The 20 has greater value. Well, they're both pieces of paper. They're not very big. They don't weigh a whole lot. Look pretty much the same. One's got So you like Jackson better than Washington. Is that what you're saying? Just a little bit more. Better president for you, was he? Because why does that one have greater value than this one? More gas. More gas. So you can take that, roll it up, put it in your gas tank, and you can go further. Oh, you can put it into the guy's hand that puts gas. So you can get something of value from that more than you can from that. That's fascinating. It's, uh, the paradox of comparative value is a fascinating thing. Why do we value something over something else? We're in week two of our intro to Isaiah. Last week, we uh, kind of looked at, at who Isaiah was and the context of which he was speaking into and the people. Uh, during that time, I talked about the three sections of the book and the time periods, and uh, I got asked to put those up again. I did not put them up last week, so I'm just going to put them up, and you can look at them. We see it broken up into three times. The first one is one chapters 1 through 39. It's a period of time that actually Isaiah lived. He lived longer than that. We're just not sure his whole lifespan, but we know that it's during that time. The second one is during the Babylonian uh, era when uh, they conquer the southern kingdom and they go into exile. And the third phase is when they come back from exile and they're disappointed in what they come back to. Uh, this week, we're going to look at it a little differently. We're going to look at what Isaiah is actually going to say or what's he going to be talking about. And we're going to look at it in four areas, God, humans, and the world and then sin and redemption. Now you can say, Tom, you can say those four things are what the whole Bible talks about. There's every book of the Bible talks about those four things, and I couldn't argue with that. But Isaiah takes a, a slightly different bro approach. He takes a, well, he brings a little certain power and imagery to it that we don't really find always in other parts of the Bible. Again, John Oswald says about Isaiah, his whole pattern of thought has been affected by the tremendous contrast between the greatness of God and the corruption of humanity. But caught up with this contrast is the amazing paradox that if humanity will lay aside its pretensions to divinity, the true God will raise us to fellowship with himself. These two thoughts form the heart of the book's theology. This idea that we try to glorify ourselves, but the only way we can glorify ourselves is glorifying God, and then he glorifies us. Oswald goes on and says, Isaiah seems to be saying that if humanity would e could even glimpse the true nature of God's greatness and glory, our problem would be on its way to being solved. The problem isn't how we see ourselves, it's that we don't see God for really who he is. Because we compare and contrast all the time. It's how we determine what's valuable. It's the same thing Chris and I just did. Why is the 20 more valuable than the one? Because we bring value to it. And our problem between us and God is not that we see ourselves too great. It's that we don't see God as great as he truly is. 
And God is truly great. I mean, it's creation. And, and, you know, I love how science helps us, even though many people see science as opposed to, to faith or to Christianity. Not at all. I mean, we just look at our little world that we live on, our little globe here, and, and how amazing it is and the beauty and the complexity and all that. And we can see that anything that created that. But then when we start thinking about the universe, which we really can't, because our brains can't comprehend it. We don't even have anything that can even begin to help us understand how phenomenal the universe is and to think that it was all created by God and that he is greater than his creation, so he's greater than this universe to which we can't even get our minds around. And we start thinking about how what infinite means and that he's infinite and that he's eternal. When we start thinking about eternity, well, we can't do that either. So we really can't fully understand the greatness of God. That's how great he is. And then there's this holiness thing. We're going to hear over and over in Isaiah him call, the, call God the Holy One of Israel. And what does holy mean? We've, we've defined this a couple of times. Really, the word holy is used in two different ways. When it's talked about God, God is holy, that means he's unique. He's one of a kind. There's no one, no thing. There is nothing that exists that's like God. He is a part of, he is what's called other. He is the other. Other than anything else we know of, that's God. And the interesting thing is everything we know has been corrupted by the fall, by sin, except for God. He's the only thing that exists that hasn't been corrupted by the fall. And his holiness is also composed of his his moral and his ethical perfection. What God does is always right. God is the definition of right. You know how we struggle? We, We try to do what's right and we can't do what's right so often. He never struggles. He never worries about not doing right because what he does is always right because he's perfect. Now you could say, Tom, well, how do you know that? How do you know he doesn't struggle with doing right versus doing wrong? Because the Bible tells us. Well, sure, that, that Bible thing, right? Well, let's just get something clear again. If, if this isn't right, then we have no idea who God is. None. Either this is true and truly is the word of God and tells us accurately about God, or we have nothing else that tells us about God. What drives me nuts is people that want to take some things out of this and something somewhere else and somewhere out of their own mind and kind of put together a God. The only God that exists that we know about is the God in the Bible. So either there is a God and he's told to us about the Bible or there's no God and we're just kidding ourselves. Now the other definition of holy, things associated with God such as the Holy Bible, it's holy because of God. The temple was holy because that's where God would dwell at times. And we are called holy, as we're associated with God. Now, that's the crazy part. Even though we're essentially the opposite of being holy in and of ourselves because of the fall and because of sin, 
God wants us to be holy. Now, he knows we can't be holy by ourselves, but he offers us the opportunity to be holy through him. We'll get to that later. Isaiah also contrasts the the holy God to idols. Idols, things made by humans that we worship. These idols that are merely reflections of humanity. They have no value. They, They only have the value we give to them. This dollar has no value. Go do something with it. You could light it, but it's only going to burn for a few seconds. You can't eat it. What can you do with it? Maybe if you sewed enough of them together, you could wear them as clothing, but really it has no value. The only value it has is that which we give it. That's the way it is with idols. Idols have the value that we give them. And really, the only thing they do for us is they give us a false sense of us trying to seek the glory that is really due God. We're trying to glorify ourselves through the idols that we make and worship. Now, Isaiah also sees God as sovereign over history. Not that he's always overriding free will of man. We're going to see many times in there where man is clearly not doing what God would like him to do. But he has this plan, and he's working this plan out. Now, every defeat or victory in the world of his people do not alter his plan. His plan isn't that this battle will go this way and this battle will go that way. No, his plan is much bigger than that, and it has a goal, an end to it. And that's what his plan's about. But Eric's going to talk more about that next week. That brings us to to humans in the world. There are many paradoxes in in Isaiah. He loves to use that as a literary tool, the paradox. One of his greatest is, again, how he sees humans. He sees humans apart from God. Humans in the world are a decaying mess. They expound the values of selfless love and justice and equality and peace, yet regularly deny these. In practice. Now, other than, you know, humans would argue otherwise, but this mess results in making creation less than ultimately significant in existence. Even though we think this world is what the world's all about, this world is not what the world's all about. But by turning to God and acknowledging his significance, the result is the glorification of humanity. The world, in other words, our significance comes from acknowledging the significance of God. Thus the paradox. What I want, I only can go get by not seeking it, but by seeking the glory of God. By seeking the glory of God, I glorify myself. When I seek my own glory, I can't get glory. The paradox. Again, back to Oswald. He says, Human beings are important because God chooses to make them reflections of his glory, to share his holy character with them. Are the failures and atrocities of human humanity signs of its fundamental worthlessness? No. 
They are the results of refusals to let God be Lord. If they will allow him his rightful place, then redemption, exaltation, and glory are ours. This is what Isaiah wrestles with all the time. It's what God wrestles with with his people, the Jews, the Judeans. He says over and over, if you'll do this, you'll get what you want. But they can't see it. They don't understand. What they want is not what they think they want. But they can't see the path. Now, some view Isaiah as being extremely hard on humanity. Somebody mentioned to me this morning, they just read first third of the book and said, wow, that can be some tough stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it isn't that he sees humanity is not valuable. He just sees the value of humanity as it's given its value by God. And that brings us to sin. Isaiah sees sin as rebellion against God and it's a result of two things, pride and a desire for independence. Humans refuse to acknowledge God as Lord and they are dependent and that they are dependent on him. All evil in the world springs from this basic sin. Our desire is to control our lives. Even when we say we don't want control, we seek control. And yet we acknowledge we can't control our lives. The paradox. I mean, if you think you can control your lives, okay, guys, some of you got here, don't go bald, don't get arthritis. Don't have a bum knee. Undo all those things that happened to you when you're young that you're now paying a price for that you're slightly older. This fallacy of control. We are not in control. The, the, the amazing thing is that those things that we can't control, we try to control. And the one thing we can control, we seem to not own the control of. We can't control most of the things in the world, but the one thing we can control is our approach to God. Are we willing to turn to God? Are we willing to make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives? We can control that, but you hear all the time, hey, I'm only human. What can I do? What do you want from me? I want you to do the one thing you can control. And quit trying to control all these things you can't control. It's amazing. People comment and, and, you know, uh, something's happened in their life and, you know, what are your thoughts? And I say, well, you know, well, let's turn to the Bible. What what do you think the Lord would have you do? Da, 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 Well, come do that. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Well, what you want to do got you here. So why don't we try something different? Try God's way. Let's try that. Maybe that would work. Mm, No, I don't want to. You see, again, the paradox is that which we want, that which we desperately need is available, 
But we have to not pursue it. We need to pursue God who can give it to us. And that means acknowledging that we are not in control. He is. Let go of our pride. Let go of our overwhelming desire to say, I can do it myself. And live for him. Now I know this isn't like rocket science new stuff. Nothing in Isaiah is going to go, whoa, never thought of that before. But he is going to say it with a certain amount of imagery and power that you don't find in most of the Bible. There's something about Hebrew poetry that has a way of simply saying, don't do that, and make it sound a whole lot more, well, powerful. So, that brings us to our last one. Now, judgment is, is throughout Isaiah. I mean, you don't have to be, you know, a genius to read any of Isaiah and say, hmm, God's judgment is a part of that. And that isn't the, the amazing part. The amazing part is that God's redemption and how big a theme that is in Isaiah. It's, you see, God's redemption is, is a product of his faithfulness, his compassion, and his mercy. We, we don't earn any of this. In fact, what we deserve and it's clear in Isaiah, is punishment and judgment. But that's not what God wants. God doesn't want to punish his creation. doesn't want to even have to judge his creation. You see, we are incapable of redeeming ourselves. We don't believe that because this whole control thing tells us that there must be a way I can do this. There's got to be a way that I can make this right. But we can't. Only God can. Now, he uses Assyria uh, to, to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and he'll use Babylon to, to punish and, and execute his judgment on the southern kingdom, Judah. We'll see that. But then he used Cyrus the Persian king, to bring redemption back to the southern kingdom. And he brings this redemption in this powerful way, and yet many of them don't accept it. And we're going, wait a minute. When, when, you, were, when you were destroyed and taken into captivity, you, you just kept going, will there ever be a day, will there ever be a day I can go back? And then that day comes. And millions say, mm, no, I don't think so. I don't think I want to. But it's no different today, right? I mean, Jesus Christ is the offer of redemption. And yet, millions, billions say, no, I don't think so. So the ultimate problem in Isaiah is sin. 
Humans are incapable of atoning for, making right for their sins. So the result is an obstacle between them and God. And Isaiah says it clearly in 59.2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. Listen to how he says that. It isn't that God hid his face because of your sin. Your sins have hidden his face from you. The active agent is not God, it's your sin. Our sins cause this obstacle between us and God. It's not God turning away from us. The sin itself is the obstacle. And if we're ever to be in relationship with God, that sin has to be dealt with. In the Old Testament, he had the Mosaic Law. But that, that couldn't endure adequately because of the overwhelming sin of humans. So God has this plan. And nowhere in the Old Testament is it laid out more clearly than in Isaiah. He has this plan where he is going to send his, his suffering servant, his anointed one, the Messiah. He uses those phrases in Isaiah to offer atonement. And there's four things in Isaiah that Isaiah lays out that we need to do to have our sins atoned for. First, we have to renounce our pride. In other words, we have to renounce his I know best and acknowledge that God is God and he is the only one that can atone for our sins. Then we need to acknowledge God as Lord of our lives. We need to accept his redemptive offer through his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to be a servant. Those four things are what Isaiah lays out. Now, we can say, I don't want to do that. And again, billions of people do that. But that's what God offers. Now, a lot of his redemptive language is found in the last third of the book, but you don't have to go too far to you start to hear it. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This contrast. And at times, paradox is laid out over and over in Isaiah. If we'll do this, this is what will happen. If we're willing to acknowledge that God is God and we are not, if we're willing to acknowledge that, yes, we need to be redeemed, that we need to be saved, that we are sinners, then this is what's available to us. The obstacle's gone. Eternal life, a part of God's family, being a part of his kingdom, all that is offered to us through Isaiah if we're willing to believe it. 
and accept it. So God, humans, sin, redemption. It's all there. Isaiah comparing, contrasting the respective values of each in the coming months. Looking at the paradoxes of what's valuable and what we want versus what we strive for. And I invite you along for the journey. I guarantee you it'll be significant and of great value. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we we acknowledge that we we strive for that which we can't obtain and refuse to accept the gift as it's offered. We acknowledge at times, Lord, that our value system is askew. We acknowledge that we strive at times to be in control, to be, well, you. But we know through your servant Isaiah and through your word that that you seek to make clear to us the offer that you make. That if we're willing to accept your son Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we can have, well, forgiveness, redemption, adoption, mercy and grace, and a peace that is found nowhere else. Bring us to a point where we can accept that and see that. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.